Well, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. We're taking a break in our Galatians study. As I mentioned, we'll pick that Galatians study up on December 27th. But tonight, let's take a look at Matthew, chapter 2. Thinking about some Christmas themes tonight. Tonight is the theme of worship. The theme of worship. Worship is not that which pleases me, but worship is that which pleases God, Jesus Christ. And I think the one, maybe, group of people that set the highest standard for worship, I would also say commitment to his word, diligence to obedience, and worship would be the wise men, the magi. There's not a lot known about the magi, but we're going to look and study at a few things and maybe even get a little perspective of what they were thinking as they came to see Jesus as a child in Bethlehem. And then I want to bring it home at the end and give us, I think, some very practical applications for our own families and our own local church. And so um, hold on, hang on tight as we look at the scriptures. We want to be discerning and, and wise, but we also want to get the idea of the high standard of diligence to God's word, obedience to God's word, and true biblical worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which we believe is divinely inspired. It is breathed out by you through holy men of old. It is profitable for us for doctrine. It will teach us. It will correct us. It rebukes us. It humbles us. It builds us up, and it equips us for every good work. Father, tonight we want to be built up for every good work. We may need humbling, and we may need correction. We may need strengthening and upholding in weak areas. But Father, we do pray that you, through your word and through the Holy Spirit, will have your way with us. We want to be men and women who are worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be diligent and obedient to your word. So thank you, Father, for what we can learn from all of Scripture, and particularly the events involved in the Magi and our Savior when he was just a child. So thank you again for giving us the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom as we apply these truths in our life. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 2, here's what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Uh, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. 
And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being finally warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country and went away. And that ends the episode of the Magi. Well, there's many things we don't know about the text, and so I don't want to speculate. But I do know this much. In the Old Testament, there were wise men in the Old Testament from the East. We know one of them in the book of Daniel. Daniel himself was considered the chief of the Magi. So when we approach the story of Matthew 2, oftentimes we just think the Magi were, um, you know, kind of like bumbling fools that were astronomers, and they're looking at the conjunction of stars and planets, wondering something great might be happening in the next few months or years. And then, boy, what is it? Where are we going? Why, why are we going? Who are we going for? What's all happening? I don't think that the Magi were that clueless about their expedition and about their purpose. Clearly, why did they go? They went to worship him. They came to worship Jesus, and they knew a lot about him before they even arrived. I see three groups of people here. You see the one group is Herod and his band of people. What's their response to the gospel, to Jesus being born? Herod's response is hostility, outright rejection and anger and hostility. We must destroy this one. And isn't that true with many people with Christmas? You bring up Jesus, and there's hostility. There's just anger of Jesus. Boy, you could talk in uh, the public schools and everywhere about Muhammad and all of this, but boy, you bring up Jesus, and it's almost like uh, there's a wall that comes up. People can talk about God and religion all day, but when it comes to Jesus, the person of Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection, boy, people don't want to hear it. I was telling my ninth grade class, they were asking questions, and I just mentioned, yes, Christmas is not about Santa and stockings. It's all about, it's all about God becoming flesh, dwelling in God dwelling in the flesh. Jesus is God. And they're, they're like, no, Jesus can't be God. I'm like, no, Jesus is God. They were, they were absolutely vehement that I was wrong. They're like, no, he can't be God. I'm like, yes, Jesus was fully God in the flesh. But there's hostility, and, and Herod obviously portrays it. But there's another group of people, and we can see that in the scribes and Pharisees. Herod calls the scribes and Pharisees. Do they know where to go in the scriptures to find out where the Messiah would be born? Certainly they do. They know to go to Micah, chapter 5. They know that much. So I see this group of people that are just completely indifferent about Jesus. They are less than five miles away from Bethlehem, being in Jerusalem. It would not be a hard walk at all to get to, to find this baby, and, and, uh, and they have no interest. Completely indifferent. And there's a wide group of people in our world who... Some are very hostile, but some are just completely indifferent. They don't care one way or the other. Um, for Jesus, it's just a simple add-on to their life or a simple um, pleasure if they need him and when they need him, but otherwise, they have no care for him or no need for him. And then, of course, we see the third group, which would be the Magi, that were diligent, obedient worshipers of God. So we know that these Magi, being worshipers of God, um, we know that they had some clue as to what they were looking for. And of course, as I mentioned, Daniel was one of the chief of the Magi in the Babylonian Empire. But look again at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So right away, they know to go to Jerusalem. They don't know exactly where this Messiah is who has been born, but they know to go to the capital city of uh, Judea, they come to Jerusalem, and here's what they said in verse 2, where is he, so what are they looking for? A, a boy, they're looking for a male, where is he, who has been born 
So they know he hasn't been appointed or made a king, but he was actually born a king. And then it says, a king of the Jewish people. So they knew who they were looking for. They knew what his task and his ministry would be. And then it says, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Their whole purpose was not to give gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it was to worship him. So they knew that this male who was in the Jerusalem area, because that's the capital city, would be the king of the Jews, but he would also be deity. He would be God. Because no, they wouldn't worship us. A, a man, they are going to worship God. And I think you'll see that as we continue on through the text. Remember Daniel as the chief of the Magi? When in Daniel chapter 7, he saw, the, he saw God Almighty um, sitting on a throne. And one, like the Son of Man, came to him and was given dominion over all the kingdoms of the world. This would be the greatest king of kings and lord of lords. He would have absolute all authority. And in Daniel chapter 9, we even get the approximate time frame of Messiah, the prince coming, 490 years. So there's a lot of details from the chief magi in the east, Daniel, that would have been passed down generation to generation. And now these magi know we're looking for a male who has been born king of the Jews, and we're going to bow and worship. We're going to, we're going to give reverence and, and worship to this individual. All right, now we're going to cover two things now for the rest of the time. The first is this issue of the star guiding, and the second thing is the gifts. Here's a thought. We don't know what the star was. It could be a conjunction of planets, a supernova, comets, all sorts of things. I have my, my own thought and idea on this. Take a look again at the scripture. It says in verse 2, For we have seen his star in the east. So what notified and identified to them that there was this tremendous birth on the scene that would be the king of the Jews, this male baby who is a king, who is also God, is the star that appeared in the east. If you go down, please, to verse 7. Herod, when he secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So at one time it wasn't there, and then it showed up but in the east to the Magi, and then if you take a look at verse 9, when they heard the king, look at the scriptures carefully here. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east. So it appears the star that's shining that they saw in the east had then disappeared. They made their way to Jerusalem, and now it has reappeared. The star which they had seen in the east went before them. So it led them to a particular place in Bethlehem till it came and it stood over where the young child was. Do you know this picture? They're leaving Herod's presence and here this star, which they saw in the east, has now reappeared and it brings them and pinpoints the exact house where Mary, Joseph, and the babe are, where the child is in Bethlehem. And it stood over the house. Now, again, it could be a planet or a conjunction of planets. Um, there's, again, been lots of speculation, but let me take you to a quick thought about the glory of God. Because to me, I think that we can see uh, in Scripture something clear about the glory of God. Take your Bibles, go with me to Ezekiel, please. Go with me to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and we're looking at chapter 9. Okay, the glory of God. In the Old Testament, here, here's what we do know. God has always wanted to dwell with us, right? He wants to dwell with us. 
He created us for fellowship, for a relationship with him. Our sin has broken that relationship and fellowship with him, so he could not dwell with us. He walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He had fellowship and a relationship with them, but when they sinned, that relationship was broken. The fellowship was, was gone. God has always desired for his people to be with him. Remember what he said? He has made many promises, and we heard this morning from Pastor Joe. God wants to dwell with us, and he wants us to dwell with him. So when Adam and Eve sinned, he could no longer dwell here on earth. And then he did tell Moses in the book of Exodus, I want you to build a tabernacle. Why? Because God said, there I will dwell with you and I will meet with you. So God chose a tent, a moving, a movable tent in the wilderness for which he could dwell. When in Exodus 40, Moses had the, the tabernacle built, on the day that it was consecrated for ministry, what happened? It says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and they could not even go into the tent because the pillar of fire was on top and the tent was full of the glory of God. I do believe the glory of God is representative, it just is representative of his light, his, his immense, infinite character displayed in light. And so, so the light of the pillar of fire and God's presence filled the, ta the tabernacle of Moses so they couldn't even enter it. We know that when Solomon built the temple and it replaced the movable tent and now there was a temple up on Aruna's threshing floor, the day he consecrated it, what happened? The glory of God, the presence of God and the Shekinah glory came and dwelt in the temple and it was full of the glory of God. It just filled it so nobody could enter into the temple for their ministries. So when God wanted to dwell on earth, he dwelt in light, glorious light. It, right, where was it? Over the Ark of the Covenant, in between the two cherubim, right? We'll take a look at Exodus, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 3. Actually, um, we, we have, here's what we know. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he gets a vision of the Lord seated on a throne, and it's like a fiery appearance with a rainbow around it. So it's a brilliant brightness, a bright glory. And then in... Um, Chapter 8, in verse, go, go back to chapter 8, verse 4, just so you can see my progression of that here. Remember, the Shekinah glory, the, the presence of God on earth was over the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Verse 4 says this, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. So the glory of God is in the temple, over the Ark of the Covenant, like the vision that Ezekiel had, this bright, shining form. And what is a star but a blazing fire? And what is the pillar of fire? It's a blazing fire of the presence of God. Now go to chapter 9, verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the mantle of the planet. So the glory of God moves from the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, in the Holy of Holies, and it moves... And Ezekiel sees it move from the Ark of the Covenant to the threshold, to the door of the temple. Now go on to chapter 10, verse 4. Chapter 10, verse 4 says, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. We just read that. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. Down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. These were the cherubim of the vision with the wheels. 
Verse 19, and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. So now where is the glory of God? It's not at the threshold anymore. It's now at the eastern gate of the city. So it's moved from the, from the Holy of Holies to the threshold. Now it's at the eastern gate. It's going to go someplace else, though. Chapter 11, verse 23 Chapter 11, verse 23, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Well, what mountain is on the east side of Jerusalem? It's the Mount of Olives. All right, that's where Jesus ascended to heaven, and that's where he will descend. So here, the glory of God, the bright shining forth of the temple, left the temple, went to the threshold, went to the eastern gate, and went to the Mount of Olives, where it disappeared and left the earth. Because God was no longer going to dwell with his people that had rejected him. The priesthood was corrupt. The kings were corrupt. His presence no longer on earth in the, in the form of the shining glory of God. Take your Bible. Since you're in Ezekiel, go to 43. Ezekiel 43. What happens when Jesus comes back? <clears throat> Take a look at Ezekiel chapter 43. Verse 2, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel came, which way? From the way of the east, just like it departed, it went out that way. Now it came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Because what's happening? God is coming back to earth to dwell permanently. And he's coming how? In a blaze of light, in glory, glorious light. Whenever God was on earth, he was in light. He was enthroned in light in the Old Testament tabernacle and in the future millennial kingdom in the temple of the millennial. It goes on in verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. Verse 5. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So it came back to earth. It had gone. It departed in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11. And then all of this time is gone, and then it's coming back again by way of the east, coming through the eastern gate into the temple, and there it will reside. It's the dwelling of God. God wants to dwell with you and I, right? Take your Bibles, go to Revelation 22. <coughs> Revelation 22, I know there's a lot just to think about as we kind of put this whole theme of the glory of God. Because the glory of God is tied to his light, his brightness. God is light in those words. We look at the second thought of the fact that he wants to dwell with us, he wants to tabernacle with us, and live with us, which is a humbling thought. And when he does live on earth, it's always in glorious light. In Revelation chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 21, Revelation 21, verse 23. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. So even in the eternal state, the glory of God will be the light of the eternal state. So light and God's glory are always tied together. Now could it be, listen, here's my thought. Could it be that the Magi living in the east, they don't see some conjunction of planets or comets or some supernova that all of a sudden flashed in the sky, and then they thought, oh, something big must be going on out there. I don't know, let's go find out. But I think it could be this. When Jesus came, born in the flesh of the virgin, conceived of a virgin, 
God is now dwelling on earth again, but now he's veiled in flesh. He's not a Shekinah glory sitting over the Ark of the Covenant. He is in flesh that can be handled and touched. He can be nailed to a cross and he can pay the sin of all the world. So no wonder why when the angel announces to the shepherds, Behold, we bring I bring glad tidings of great joy. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the King, Christ the Lord. No wonder why the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds. Why would God's glory be shining around the shepherds so that they're greatly afraid? Because God is back on earth. But now not as a presence of light, but as the Messiah in body form, God in the flesh. Now does it make sense? When the Magi see the, the, the shining glory of God in the east, I mean, it's like a blazing star, and then it, it's gone. They know God's presence in the Old Testament was always light. That's how he was in the tabernacle. They go to Jerusalem. They're asking King Herod, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. We, that's the sign of God's presence on earth. When God comes to earth, he always comes in light. We saw the light. And where is he? Then they tell him, Bethlehem. And when they leave Herod, what, what appears again? The Shekinah glory of God. And it leads them. Now, it's hard to say that a planet could lead them or a star could lead them to a house. But the Shekinah glory certainly it brought the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years, leading them to every camping spot, spot right? So could you picture that? No one, in Matthew 2, it says, when they saw the star again, they were exceedingly rejoicing. Not when they saw Jesus, but when they saw the star, because they knew this is where God is going to dwell in the flesh. So then the star, or the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, reveals Jesus is, is, is deity. Because the glory of God comes over the house, there is the baby. I think when the Magi walked into that house and they saw Jesus, and they saw the Shekinah glory over the house, I think they were thinking, we are walking in the Holy of Holies. We are in the Holy of Holies. We are in the presence of deity. They knew it because they bowed and they worshipped him. Phenomenal, isn't it? And now if you think about the, even at the death of Jesus, in the tomb, there were two angels. Where did the two angels sit when, after he had risen from the dead? <coughs> one at the feet, one at the head, almost like the Ark of the Covenant. Two angels with Jesus, the mercy seat. Another just aspect of the glory of God. Like when they walked into that empty tomb and they saw two angels with the, with, um, the, the grave clothes, I, they must have thought, this looks like the Ark of the Covenant. This is the mercy seat. This is where our sin has been atoned through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The, the, so you could take that and think of it a lot more. But now I want to take you to the gifts. Why the gold, frankincense, and myrrh? I think, again, as the Magi knew, we're going to worship the God of the Old Testament who dwells in light. Where would they find, how do you worship God in the Old Testament? Of course, they didn't have the New Testament. How do you worship God? You look to the scriptures. Take your Bibles. Go with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 37. In Exodus 37, you find three main things in the tabernacle that God required in the tabernacle. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All in one chapter. I think the Magi went to the scriptures and said, how do we worship God? How does God want to be worshipped? We're not going to go and worship him our own way. We want to know, how, do, how, do, how are we supposed to worship God? The God of Israel. Well, God told them how to worship him. And he told it in Exodus 37. Take a look, take a look at this. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but I can tell you this. 
Verse 2, he overlaid it with pure gold and a molding of gold. Verse 3, four rings of gold. Verse 4, gold. Verse 6, gold. Verse 7, beaten gold. Verse 11, pure gold. A molding of gold. Verse 12, a molding of gold. Verse 13, four rings of gold. Verse 16, gold. Do you get the theme? Verse 17, gold. Verse 22, gold. Verse 23, gold. Verse 24, pure gold. Verse 26, gold, gold. Verse 27, gold. Verse 28, gold. Do you get the idea? The Magi look to the Bible and say, how does the God of Israel want to be worshipped? He wants to be worshipped using with gold, with the idea of gold. Well, the gold was, everything was overlaid with gold in the tabernacle. The wood may be representing his humanity, grown of the earth. He's fully human. The gold, fully deity. I think when they brought the gold to Jesus, they were saying, this baby is God. Because the gold of the tabernacle, it represented deity. The wood represented his humanity. So the wood overlaid with gold, Jesus is both 100% human and 100% deity. They didn't like just say, hmm, you know, what do you have laying around in the back that we can give this baby when we see him? Oh, I got some extra gold bars? Okay, might as well bring that. Uh, silver, now nah, let's bring the gold. They weren't like, I don't think they were like, huh, what do we have in the storeroom that we could bring? I think they were looking to the scriptures saying, the God of Israel that dwells in the tabernacle in light, he desires symbolically his deity representing gold. We're bringing gold. We want everybody to know this baby is, is deity. This baby is God. But look at the next verse, 29. Exodus 37, 29. He also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices, according to the work of the perfumer. So verse 29 mentions holy anointing oil and pure incense of sweet spices. Those two items, the anointing oil and the sweet incense, the anointing oil made of pure myrrh with other things added. And so let's take a look at that. Exodus 30. <coughs> Exodus 30. I think we can see there's so much we can learn and think about this. The, the Magi did such homework. How do we worship God? How does he desire our worship? We are going to see God rolling on earth. Verse 22. Exodus 30, verse 22. Exodus chapter 30. Verse 22, here's how God said to make a holy, holy anointing oil. Verse 23, um, as the Lord spoke to Moses, also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh. So that would be the base, liquid myrrh, pure myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a kin of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony. The table, all of its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the labyrinth vase, you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel. This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh. Nor shall you make any other like it, according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any of it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Pretty serious if you make this holy anointing oil and you misuse it. 
Why? Because everything that was consecrated for God's purpose was anointed with this oil. Every utensil, every part of the tabernacle was sprinkled with this holy anointing oil. When these wise men brought myrrh, and they brought it before Jesus, not only were they saying with the gold, this baby is deity, he is God in the flesh, but they were also saying this baby is the anointed one, the Mashiach. He is the one chosen by God for a special purpose. He has been set aside, just like all of these utensils of the tabernacle were set aside for a special purpose, they were consecrated. This baby is consecrated for a special task. He will suffer for the sins of the world. Isaiah said he would bear our sins and carry our sorrows. So they, they knew this child has been set aside and anointed by God himself for a special purpose of, of being the one seed that would crush the serpent's head. So you can almost, be, can you imagine? They were so diligent to say, we're bringing myrrh. The three things God requires in the Old Testament, gold, symbolic of his deity, myrrh, for the, the setting aside of everything used for his ministry, and then thirdly, frankincense, also found in Exodus 30, verse 34. And the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stockpick, and anka, and galbanum, and pure frankincense, with these sweet spices, there shall be equal amounts of each. Pure frankincense. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where, here it is, I will meet with you. Before God would meet with them, in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to take this frankincense, this mixture of frankincense, and burn it with fire to create a cloud. And only then, when the cloud covered the Ark of the Covenant, then the high priest could meet with God, but not until then. There had to be a cloud of incense, or God said they will die. Leviticus 16, you must have this cloud of incense. What were these magi saying about Jesus? They're walking into the Holy of Holies, the house where Jesus is, the Shekinah glory has led them to this exact place. They are looking at the Holy of Holies. They are seeing the Ark of the Covenant, the one who would propitiate our sin, the one who would remove the wrath of God from our sin by bearing our sin. He would be the substitute. And they said, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The frankincense, this child, this baby, through him, he will, be, he will mediate between us. He will be the cloud of incense so we can finally meet and have a relationship with God. It's incredible. So, a couple of New Testament verses that go along with this. Ephesians 5, verse 2. Ephesians 5, verse 2 says that Jesus Christ is, an, is a sacrifice and an offering for us, a sweet-smelling aroma. That's what frankincense was. Jesus is our sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma to God. The Bible also says in Luke chapter 4, Jesus quoting out of Isaiah, the Lord, the Spirit of God, has anointed me that he would heal the lame and he would release the captives and so he is the anointed one and so I want to share just a few applications personally for us for 2 Corinthians chapter 1 20-22 says God has established us God has also anointed us not with the type of work that Christ has done on the cross but he has set you aside you are consecrated to him he has a, a special purpose for you to serve in the church, using your gifts, building up and strengthening the church, reaching the lost, 
we are his we are anointed by him. Second Corinthians one. Um, and we are to be an aroma pleasing to Christ. Of course, we see that in Paul's words uh, to the Corinthians as well. And then um, two final thoughts. So, anyways, I think there was a, a reason for the gold frankincense and myrrh. I don't think it was accidental. I think they were diligent to look to the scriptures to find uh, how does God want to be worshipped. And then um, these two verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Two last verses. 1 Corinthians 6 speaks about where God dwells today. When he dwelt on earth in the Old Testament, it was in the Shekinah glory of the tabernacle and the temple. When he dwelt during the days of Jesus, it was God, Jesus, God in the flesh. When Jesus was crucified, risen, and ascended, the Holy Spirit came down in pillars of fire, kind of like the Shekinah glory. Pillars of fire were on all the disciples' head, and where does God dwell today? In us. God dwells in us. Romans 8, the Spirit of Christ, Colossians chapter 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Do you not know that? <laughs> See, we are not our own. We were created by God, so we are His by right of creation. But those of us who have trusted Him for our salvation... He owns us. He has purchased us with his own blood. We are not our own. It is not about my rights, my privileges, my agenda. It's not about my way. It's not about, it's, it's not my life anymore. It's Christ's life in me. We've, through our Galatians study, we're, we're seeing that. So the life that I have to live, it is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am set aside and consecrated for God in this world. I am to be in the world but not of it. But I have to realize, and so do you, that, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Can you imagine the feeling of the Magi when they knew, when they saw that Shekinah glory, they saw that light that brought them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and they knew we are walking in to the holiest place on earth, where God, the God of creation, the God of, of the universe, is dwelling. Can you imagine the thrill? But we have... God dwelling in us. And wherever we go, he goes. So can you imagine the blessing that we have for God dwelling in us? And we are not our own. We were bought at a price, verse 20, therefore, glorify God in your body. So does it matter what I do with my body? Yes. Does it matter where I go with my body? Absolutely. Why? Because God is dwelling in me. I'm not my own. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I need to glorify God in my body and in my spirit, which are God's. They belong to God. But there's another aspect of God's dwelling place on earth that I like to apply, not just individually, but corporately. Ephesians chapter 2, our final one. Ephesians chapter 2. Think of this text with me. We've gone through this text many times before. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, to these Gentile believers in Ephesus. Verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
They once were alienated from God, but now, through the death of Jesus, Jew and Gentile, one man, one new man, um, no Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, no, we're, we're one body of Christ. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Look at verse 21, though. In whom the whole building, being fit, and I think that's the universal church, all believers from the, rapture, from the day of Pentecost to the rapture, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple, the inner sanctuary in the Lord. But now look at the personal application of the Ephesians and for us. Verse 22. In whom you, you Ephesians, also are being built together for what? A dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So true. The Holy Spirit lives in me individually. He does. The Holy Spirit lives in me. But there's a sense also in the text that our local church is a dwelling place for the Lord. You also, as a local church, because the whole building is the universal church, you also, as a local church, are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God dwells in a special sense in our corporate worship, which is why it's good to be together for corporate worship, because God is, you know, we, we saw last week in the book of Hebrews in our communion service, in Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus is in the midst of us singing praises to the Father. So there's a very special sense in which our local church is a dwelling place of God. So we love one another, and we care for one another, and we uphold one another, and we pray for one another, and we watch out for one another, and we wait for one another, and we encourage one another. Sometimes we rebuke one another, but we, we are one body for the glory of God and a special dwelling place on earth for him. So, a couple of applications there. What do I get from this high standard that the Magi have set? Quickly, I think that the Magi knew the Old Testament. They studied the Bible to know what are we to do? How are we to act when it comes to worship of God? And I think you and I should be as diligent to the Word of God. We need to be committed to the study of God's Word. We do. We need to say, worship in the church is not about my preferences, it's not about me, it is about God. It is about building up others, but it's about Jesus Christ. What pleases and satisfies him. And then um, they were obedient. right? So they were diligent to God's word. They were diligent to be obedient. And they were genuine worshipers. Some things for us to think about as we approach the Christmas season. A lot of opportunities to display these things in our life. Don't forget, though, you are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Temple of God. Father, thank you for our time together just looking at this aspect of the Christmas story. We are thankful that it has been recorded for us and that we can see that your desire is to tabernacle with us. Your desire is to be with us. And someday we will be face to face in your presence. And for the millennial reign and for the eternal state, we will live in your presence. We will live in your light. Until then, Father, we have the Holy Spirit directing and enlightening and empowering us to obey. He's teaching us. And I thank you for that ministry. We long for the day when we are face-to-face -face with you. And we're excited about the rapture. So we say, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, Father, we want to be diligent worshipers, students of the word, obedient to what it says, and our goal is to please you. We want to all day, every day, worship you. 
Thank you for dwelling in our local congregation, dwelling in our lives through the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of work. And I pray that this week we'll have opportunity to share the gospel, we'll have opportunity to care for one another, call one another, and encourage one another. So again, help us to be reaching out to one, to one another and to us this week. And we'll do great things through the obedience of this church. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.